What's up? What's up, Sherm? Today, we are going to talk about a lot of things screenwriting. We're going to talk about the NBA boycott today. Yes. We're going to talk to super producer, super writer, producer, super writer, director, our main man, Jamie Washington. Absolutely. We got a lot to get into today. Let's do it. Hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Diversity Hires, where Sherman Shu shoot the shit about screenwriting. We are two professional screenwriters living and working in Los Angeles. And each week you come here to hear us discuss the craft, culture, and business of writing for film and TV. I'm Shakree Tillman, AKA Shu. And I'm Sherman Payne, the greatest screenwriter of all time, the G Swope. Let's do it. Hello, Shakri. Hello, Sherm. It is a, I don't even know. It, it, it's, a, it's a weird time in America. It's been a weird time for several, several months now, but it is, uh, it, it, the hits just keep coming. I mean, it's been very weird since we started this podcast, but uh, it seems like every time, every time it can't get any weirder, we uh, delve into a new episode of The Black Mirror, living it for in real. real life. For real. It's kind of crazy. Uh, you know, last week, uh, not sure when everybody listened, when you're listening to this, but to place you in time last week, the NBA, uh, boycotted, which is really the wrong term, went on strike, had a work stoppage, uh, in the middle of the playoffs started by the Milwaukee Bucks, um, to protest, the uh, latest police shooting, the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I was, we're going to talk about that for a little bit. I'm going to throw it to you to start. Well, Just, well how yeah. did you feel about the whole thing? And how did it come about for you? Look, I um, was somebody who was glad that sports were back. I know that the last time we talked about sports, you were a little ambivalent about if they should ever come back at all. I was really glad the sports came back. And at the same time, I was really glad that the NBA chose to boycott at that moment. I think it was a powerful statement. Uh, I think that um, the fact that basically all the other major sports followed suit, baseball, even hockey, uh, tennis players were opting out of matches. WNBA, of course, followed suit. Um, I thought that was a real powerful moment. I think it did a lot to draw attention to the issue at hand. And it's something obviously that couldn't have been done had they decided not to do the season at all. So mm -hmm. I was really into it. I'm, what did you feel about it? I mean, as somebody who thought that maybe sports shouldn't come back at all, how did you feel when they decided to stop? My, uh, I think my feelings are best summed up by just walking us through a little bit briefly about how it was, how I experienced it. Because I, I will say up front that my feelings about it aren't static, even to this day. They, I, I vacillated a little bit on sort of how, I mean, overall, I feel, I, I'm very proud of the players. I'm glad, it, I'm glad that they did what they did. About two days before um, 
the because the, they were playing uh, once the news uh, of Jacob Blake got out, right? And I think they played for another day and a half or so. Mm-hmm. And I remember posting something on on social media that said that the NBA should cease all games. Now I didn't. I, think, I remember that. Yeah, I didn't think necessarily forever or, or, or cancel the season necessarily, but at this moment they have to stop because it's sort of like the band is playing on while the Titanic goes down. Do you think the Milwaukee Bucks read your tweet? No, <laughs> no way. No, <laughs> that, that would be an amazing coincidence. I, I don't think so. Cause I think it had been brewing in the bubble for a long time. All reports seem to indicate the players were upset uh, even before they got there. And once they got there, uh, news of this got out. It seemed to really resonate with people. Okay. So when the, when, the, when the news broke that the Milwaukee Bucks were not coming out of the locker room and they were not going to get on the floor, I was elated. I thought it was the great – it was because you hear so much about sports, especially in the modern era, people caring about something but not wanting to put their money where their mouth is, right? Not wanting to actually take the action that would maybe piss people off. Because remember, the Bucks were going to take a, a loss. They were okay with that. They didn't think the game was going to be postponed. They thought they were just forfeiting. And I thought that right. was great. And later, and I'll just, I'll just be brief that later, you know, they had a meeting and then the result of all the meetings and everything ended up being, we need an action plan. And then that action plan in short turned into the cre- creation of a social justice coalition and then um, pressing owners to open up arenas for voting and, uh, I maybe one other thing that I can't even remember what it is. And to me, uh, and prior to that, uh, there was talk that night that mm-hmm. the Clippers and the Lakers wanted to end the season and including LeBron James. Yeah. At that point, um, my feelings went from, this is really great. And even when they talked about canceling the season, wow, even better to, arenas and and voting yes that's important but the owners have been talking about that before uh-huh. um a social justice coalition group fine seems like a an okay thing and then i mean i think in their statement that the term police brutality was mentioned once i think whose statement whose statement the, are you talking the about? players came out with and what their uh-huh. what their actions were going to be and then so i left feeling like torn by that 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 didn't seem to match the action and and i want to bring jamin in here too because I, I to me that felt like i mean i would have been i would have felt more comfortable and been fine with mm-hmm. george hill and the milwaukee bucks saying we don't have a plan i just know that i can't keep playing while this is going on I might take a day off, two off. They talked to legislate, let the legislators in uh, Wisconsin. They talked to the Blake family, uh, and that seemed to be the right move in the locker room. By the way, while they were while the, this was happening, that seemed to be the right move. And if they came out and said, "I don't know when we're going to play, but we just needed to not play for a couple of days because this is emotional and we're not going to take it and whatever," fine. But and to tease the idea of not of canceling the season and then not do it leaves a a, a bad taste in my mouth to me. It, it just it, it felt like eh, I didn't like that. So I'm now at the place where and I'll just finish. I'm now at the place where I'm like, okay, look, 
overall, I think it was a good thing. I'm glad. I'm proud of people for doing it. Yes, okay. I just didn't like to be sort of teased that there was going to be a really radical action, and there wasn't. Um, and I would have settled for less in a in a in a strange way. I think that what actually came out in some ways is kind of watered down. Jamin, I agree with I agree with that completely. Shu, I, I think I should start by saying I I think it's a little unrealistic and even unfair for us as a society to expect sports to lead this charge. Um, and so yes. my my expectations, I think for this were are pretty low to begin with, but that moment, just like you said, when the Milwaukee Bucks made that announcement, like I I thought, oh wow, we're at this place where these people, like they're recognizing their power. And I just saw a moment where like, this was gonna trickle down. Like there was some, there was some, like you said, Sherman, there was some NFL teams that made a statement, baseball protested. A hockey team protested. Some college teams were making, and I was like, "This, this could be the moment where all of a sudden, this like we're in this industry that has never fully recognized its power on that end was recognizing its power, and then in forty-eight hours, it seems like it's sort of over. Mm-hmm. That like we're, we're sort of back to where we started, and so I, I for that forty-eight hours, I was like, it, the, I, I was ecstatic, like, oh, this is this is about to be something. And now I'm back to like, oh, well, yeah, it was it was unrealistic and unfair to begin with to expect them to do that. Well, to follow that up and to bring it back to our industry. Is there a film industry equivalent to um, an act of protest that could draw this much attention to the subject matter? We're all black filmmakers and screenwriters and producers and directors. Do we have any sort of agency or any ability to make the same sort of statements through our work or our work stoppage? With that said, I mean, let's put it in a little bit of perspective. None of us are the filmmaking equivalents of LeBron James (laughs) or (laughs) Russell Westbrook, right? But we do have those people. You know, I mean, I think you look at the Shondas, the Kenyas, uh, the Lena Waithes, um, the Jordan Peels, people on that level sort of are those equivalents. So can we as a group, as a community, can our superstar uh, players, for to belabor the analogy, is there anything we can do to make uh, important statements about Black Lives Matter and uh, the end of police brutality? Well, I think the answer is, is undoubtedly yes. And for those who, um, you know, we are going to introduce our main man, Jamin Washington. You just heard his maybe disembodied voice without an intro, but <laughs> we're going to get to that. We just, we want to do We're going to get to that when we get to it. <laughs> yeah, we Let's keep listening. His. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a problem with that, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Yeah. We're going to get to it when we get to it. you need a format, you know. You know. <laughs> if you need any kind of structure or rhyme <laughs> or reason to why we're doing things, find a different podcast, yo. This one's not for you, bro. <laughs> Go with the flow. Anyway, um, here's the first thing that came to mind. I mean, the answer is yes. There is an equivalent thing. The when the NBA thing started, the first thing I thought of was the NBA Players Association is a union. The Writers Guild of America is a union, and yes. the WGA came out with a statement that said we support them. But a nice action, to Jamin's point, had it gone on a little longer, had it had there been a little more suspense, mm-hmm. a right action could have been from 
the the um, committee of black writers or the black writers in the guild to stop working in in solidarity with another union and and to com- and to commit to a work stoppage for however long. That would have been something that could have gone on. I disagree. <laughs> nation. I, Why? I disagree. I want to bring. I want to. I want to hear what Jamin has to say, but I'm. I'm. A, I'm going to jump in. Go ahead, Jamin. I think there's a, a big difference that has to be accounted for in that. Like, I think in theory you're right, but the difference to me is that the NBA happens in real time. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Jack. They step out and they play the game, and that playing that game is broadcast live. Whereas everything we do, what the product that gets to the public is six months, a year, sometimes even longer than that. And so the industry and the, and the powers that be have time yes. to course correct from their end, no matter what's happening. Whereas when, when, when the Milwaukee Bucks made that decision, like the powers that be were screwed immediately. And, and that was the power they had. Whereas we don't have anything like that. And even, even if we do have, like, let's say that we're calling whoever we're calling the LeBron James of our industry, even if he steps in and says, you know what, I'm not doing this. It, yeah. it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a, a immediate impact other than the news story because the content isn't happening in real time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like <clears throat> what writers do is private alone happens on a, on a timetable that most of the public are not aware of, right? It would be, I think, the equivalent of an NBA team canceling a tape session, right? Like <laughs> nobody cares if you cancel a tape session. <laughs> right. They care about the right. game. You know what I'm saying? So uh, like so I don't what's think the right, game equivalent in our the business? game is the movie or the TV show. Or the TV you, show. You know, okay. so if you if you were in the middle of a season of a really dope show. Yes. And and you got to episode four, and you're like, "Yo, we're not airing any more shows. We're not airing episodes six through twelve or five through twelve in solidarity with the NBA." That would be something totally different. The but, the problem is that at that point, it's really not in the writers or producers or directors' hands. It's in a corporation's hands. Yes, and yes. I don't expect that a corporation with millions of dollars on the line would voluntarily do that. So, it's, and the truth is that like. Even if you're the LeBron James of writing, or the LeBron James of producing, or the LeBron I am. James of directing, I am. I just don't have that time. I just don't have that fame yet, but I really am. But that's what I mean. You can't, even if you are, even if you are that, you don't. You're not public facing. So it's really the right. actor in our industry that that like that's it's the point. Denzel Washington yeah. that can be the LeBron James, right? Because that's the public facing person that's bringing in that at least to the public is the person that that has the notoriety that can pull that off. And so, and, and they're never in the position, like, like you say, Sherman, like they can't, the the actor after those things have been filmed, can't say, Oh, I'm not, I'm not airing this episode. Like they just don't have that kind of power. But hold up. I I think that's a great point. I think you're absolutely right. That the equivalent is really the actor because it's public facing. They are stars in a lot of cases. And I, you could also say they are union members if that ma- matters to anybody. So they, they're part of a workers union, the, the Screen Actors Guild. So, But where I do disagree, though, is that I don't know that it has to be like live. In other words, they're not filming. So this is not a, a, a normal case of events, but they, they will be soon. If 
Sterling K. Brown decided he was not going to show up to work on This Is Us, even though the episode is going to air six months from now, that's a big deal. That's something that people are going to have to deal with. If um, uh, Viola Davis decides not to show up or whatever, I'm trying to think of big stars, especially in television, if they decide or they and their allies decide not to go to work, even though it's not live, I still think that's a huge deal. I agree it's it's something. I just don't think it's the equivalent because in the amount of time that it takes to get that show from script to screen, they can replace Sterling Brown and still get it to screen. Whereas if LeBron James is like, I'm not playing and they replace him, it's like those other teams aren't going to take it more lightly because they got somebody else and replace, you know, it's, I just don't think it's the equivalent. I I feel like in, in, in sports, the, the, you know, I keep going to LeBron James because he's the greatest in it, but he's sort of like the equivalent of being the actor, writer, director, producer, all, all in one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he runs the NBA. Let's, let's right. just. Yeah. Begin. I mean, I think that's an important point is that <clears throat> the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. I think it's an important point that we, we are not, um, we're not Sterling K. Brown. You know, I mean, we're not, we're not even performers. We are really, really deeply embedded behind the scenes. Yeah. So I think to answer the original question, what's the equivalent? I don't think there is an equivalent. I think what yeah. we can do is to continue to put out great work that is really, really representative of the black community in an honest and humanizing way that does not glorify policing and make them into action heroes. And I think really diving into the work and what we're saying with what we're doing is actually the best thing we can do in order to uh, help the cause at hand. That's that's firmly what I believe. Because I write a script today. I've written scripts. I sold a script that I wrote 10 years ago, man. You know what I'm saying? So like, th- there's no guarantee that what I write today will be completed and make it to viewers in a timely fashion where it's even relevant anymore. What I can do always, though, is give a really complete portrait of the black community as I see it and uh, to not step on those landmines of policing and brutality and glorifying that sort of thing. Um, that's what, that's where I can hold myself accountable. Just on that, just to like a little bit off topic, uh, how ironic is it that in training day, the black cop is corrupt and the white cop is the hero. Like, I mean, come on, bro. I mean, that, that, that's a, listen, we got to have Jamin back for a whole episode on that. Why, why in Save the Last Dance does a white girl show up at a black school? Like, that is not actually the most typical way things work. Usually it's the black kids showing up to an all-white. Uh, I mean, it's just, yes. I, it, obviously, the answer to that is to make it more palatable to white audiences. Let's, let's do that proper introduction right now. I think now is as good yes. a time as any. Do it. Uh, we are joined, if you haven't figured out, by the, the living legend, really, Jamin Washington. You may know him as a uh, film producer, producing the Netflix movies, Tramps, Give Me the Loot, which also won South by Southwest. You may know him from his Peabody winning television show, Random Acts of Flyness, which is coming back for a second season on HBO, it's rumored, where he is a writer, director, and executive producer. So uh, welcome to the show, friend in real life, friend of the show, friend of the podcast, my boy, Jamin Washington. What up, Jamin? What up, Jay? What's up, man? 
I'm glad to be here, man. I appreciate the the the, the intro. Uh, yeah, I, I did that uh, off the top. I didn't study. <laughs> oh, you didn't. You didn't even. I mean, it was good. No Thanks, hesitation. It was great. It was great. I was like, "Who's coming on the show?" I need to. <laughs> so, so Jay, why don't you? Um, you know, uh, obviously that was a great introduction. You know, obviously, obviously. I'm really excellent at this whole podcasting <laughs> thing. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, how you got to? your uh, current place as a primarily producer, but also somebody who writes and directs. Can you talk to us about how you got there? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, just the this, this sort of cliff note version, it's sort of random how I got to random act of blindness. Uh, but I was very much in the independent film world and still am in developing um, projects that you know are independently financed and it started with Gimme the Loot and Tramps, and um, I sort of f- fell in with a, a, a good friend and writer-director, Adam Leon, that I've worked with a few projects on, and that we sort of brought these projects to life from the ground up. And um, over the course of that, and just, you know, you gotta have your hands in lots of pots when you're in that world, because you just don't know what's gonna actually happen or not. And um, we've been working on this idea with Terrence Nance uh, that originally was uh, sort of this, internet idea um but that over the course of sort of a few random things that happened like ended up getting in the hands of hbo but it just was sort of this idea that we we thought really didn't wouldn't find a place or a home and it didn't seem like something that especially a a place like hbo would be was a realistic uh goal for but this sort of spark of an idea that that terrence had um who I actually met while Gave Me the Loot was uh, on its festival circuit. And he had another film called Oversimplification of Our Beauty that was on the same festival circuit. And so we found ourselves in the same circle all the time. And oddly enough, we were both two tall black men with afros. And so oftentimes <laughs> I would get called Terrence and Terrence <laughs> would get called James. <laughs> and yeah, we just, we hit it off, found we had a lot of things in common. Later on, figured out that our mothers uh, for a small period of time went to high school together. And then my oh, mom no. and his aunt went to high school together. But uh, we had been developing this, this idea that he had and, um, ended up taking it through this uh, this artist fund that Time Warner had called 150. And mm. we were able to get some funds to develop uh, what's most of what the pilot is now. Um, uh. Not a lot of funds, but enough to do it on a real low budget version. And the truth is, I don't think it's the kind of thing that ever would have gotten picked up if we hadn't been able to do that because it's not the kind of thing you could just pitch if you've seen any portion of it you know it's not like you can just walk right. in the room and be like here's this thing like, what is it yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I actually already have a, a follow-up question which is like <clears throat> for those who don't know because i think we all agree that's a it's a dope show it's probably the blackest show on television it's not the most watched show what Khalid, 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 Khalid called it uh the wokest show on television i'm very proud of that I think it's, I think it definitely is a woke show. I also think it's a blacker show. But uh, for people who haven't found it yet, can you take a step back and describe what is Random Acts of Flyness? Who is Terrence Nance that you keep mentioning, and and just break it down a little bit more for us so we can understand? Terrence Nance is a a writer, director, producer, and I would say maybe even most importantly, just artist. Like I think he's somebody that just sort of you, it's very hard to put him in a box. Um, 
a lot of his background is visual art, even before he got into film. Um, and the show, I, I describe it as um, if you got a group of really diverse black people from all walks of life and all over the diaspora, and you took them all through intense therapy and then put the results on screen, that's right, that's fine. That's great. That's great. So how do you, uh, sorry, Shu, I'm hogging, but. Go, 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 go. Uh, right, how do you write? So Random Acts of Blindness is not a show that follows a traditional narrative. I mean, it's um, it's sort of, I think, best described as vignettes, shorts. It's not really sketches because it's not always comedic, but it sort of has that vibe of like a variety show with different pre-filmed vignettes. How do you go about writing something like that? Because you're also a writer on the show. How do you actually write something like that? Yeah, so it's it's weird. And you know, I, I should I should start by saying like I had I had no writing room experience before going into this and I was the head writer on it. And so I sort of led the room. Um, and I think because I had no writing room experience, it just sort of became whatever idea of a room I had in my head, which I think, you know, un unleashed us from sort of the norms of how that operates. And so we we went in and it, like the first week was literally just us sitting around a room talking about what we were going through and talking about what was on our minds and talking about. And we found it like despite it being like, you know, I I, I think from 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 the white gaze looking at that writing room, they'd be like, oh, it's a group of black people. They're all the same. The truth is, it's like it's like the widest variety of black folks you can come up with, like mm -hmm. all sexes, sexual orientations, like gender. Um, and so and just from all different walks of life. But we found that there were some that that there were just some re reoccurring themes that came up for going through life as a black person um, and that. And, and so I think what the show ended up becoming because of that was just approaching those sort of themes from the different angles of the different writers in the room. And so a lot of what we did was just sitting around talking. Um, the following week, it was just like coming up with ideas that sort of fit into those themes. And then we went off and, and wrote it. And when we wrote it, being a, a producer on the show and being a head writer, I, 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 it's funny, we, we sat down and I remember the conversation. I was like, look, we have to write the most extreme version of this. Like we we have to we have these ideas and we need to push push the envelope as much as we possibly can because once we get these scripts and we put this together and we go to HBO, HBO is gonna tame us down. And we mm -hmm. wanna make sure that when we get tamed down, that we're still at a place that we're telling the story and 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 doing the things that we were setting out to do here, and you know, so we I remember we sat down and had that conversation. We went off and wrote, came back with scripts, and we sent the scripts off to HBO, and HBO was like, "Cool, let's do it." <laughs> <laughs> so then it was like, "Oh shit!" You mean we gotta make this? <laughs> we gotta make this as is. So you know, to HBO's credit. Um, they were, you know, not that HBO necessarily understood or understands what the show is. Uh, that's probably giving them too much credit, but I think what the credit that they absolutely deserve is that they recognized that they didn't know what the show is. They didn't need to know what the show is and they need to get out of the way. Um, mm. 
And I, I just, you know, I think HBO ended up just being the perfect place for it because I just don't think that would have happened mm. in in any any other place, really. Can I ask, I want to ask a question, just a half a step back, because a lot of people that listen to this, I imagine, are, are aspiring, and we always like to try to talk to them a little bit. Can you just talk a little bit about, like, what your experiences are, because you you end up in this place after producing some some independent films, where you're 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 obviously you're a writer. I want you to talk about that, and like you end up in this place where you're leading the group um, on this show. What what experiences, if you can be specific, like sort of prepared you for that? Did you come into graduate school wanting to be a writer or producer? Were you um, were you torn? How did how did all that and how did how did all that work getting to where you uh, currently are in Rand? Um, I never wanted to be a producer. I sort of, uh, well, I can't say I never wanted to be a producer. I didn't go into film school wanting to be a producer. I came in as a director. Actually, I think me and Sherman both came in as a director originally, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, I definitely was trying to do my writer, director, independent auteur thing. And then, uh, you know, probably the same way that you fell into producing, I just found that I had a real aptitude for writing, but also a real passion to wake up every day and do the writing portion of it and not so much the directing visual on set portion of it. So that's, that's how I got there. Yeah. I think similarly, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the, the, the greatest screenwriter of all time, but I, I think I'm a pretty good writer, but what I don't have that you do your thing, Sherman, bro, you do your thing. <laughs> but what I don't have that Sherman has ended um, that shoe has is the, you know, that thing of like, I'm gonna wake up every morning and I'm gonna write. And I think that that in order to be a, 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 a professional writer, that's the thing you really have to, like that's as important as, as a lot of the other things. Wait, but, wait, run that one back. Cause I think it's really important that you say that one again for the aspiring writers who are listening. Can you say that part one more time? Wake up and write every day. Otherwise, are you a professional writer? Like that's- Boom. <laughs> And, and and to that point is like, you know, I, I still consider myself, you know, I, people ask, what do you do? And it's like, I say, I'm a filmmaker. Like, I don't actually mm-hmm. put a thing on it. But the truth is, I'm a professional producer. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I fell into that because I did have the desire to sort of wake up every day and produce. Mm-hmm. And I think all of it is a means to an end. And all, all of us, no matter whether we're writing, directing, producing, whatever it is, we're trying to create content and it takes all of these things to do it. The question is, what are you gonna, what do you wanna focus on? And you know, area, all of us have have done all of these jobs. Like Shakri, you've written and directed, mm-hmm. you know, we've done all yeah. of it, but it's like, what are we gonna wake up every day and do? Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that I think actually defines us as we're talking about what do we do professionally. I forgot your actual question. I no, that's that, <laughs> that 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 really answers it because I think for a lot of people, first of all, a lot of people don't know what producer means. What with because it me either. <laughs> it has basically a, it means basically it means everything that writers and directors don't do, like whatever. <laughs> right. right, exactly. But I I think it's good for people to sort of like um to to recognize that that. It's it's good to choose a lane, even if the lane is because I like what you said about being a filmmaker, even if the lane is like, you know, I draw on a lot of things, 
a lot of skills or whatever to sort of produce shit. Do you know what I mean? To make shit happen. You know, I draw my writing skills. I draw my directing skills, but I put things together. That's ultimately what I do. Um, I think it's important for people to hear that and to know that there's a journey to sort of get there, you know? Question. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question, Jamin, which is if I'm listening to this uh, podcast right now and I've made it all the way through to this portion, I'm a young writer. I have dreams to be sort of a one-stop shop of writer, director, producer. What should be my path? If I want to be an indie filmmaker who does all of those things, what are my steps? What, where do I start? How do I get my foot in the door? Just give some general advice of the direction that people should be going should they want to do all of the above. If you want to do all of the above in the indie world, I think you have to figure out a way and, and you know, the advice to actually get that done is, can be all over the place, but like you have to figure out a way to make your project. Like that, that's what, it, that's what the indie world sort of boils down to. Just it's getting like, it done. You got to get it done. Um, and if you can make that project, whatever it is and that project and, and, you know, there was a time where I thought, that project kind of had to be a feature film to really like make your mark in the industry. I'm not sure that's the case now, especially, you know, with COVID and stuff, like even our idea of what a feature film is, is probably going to change a little bit, but like you have to, that that's what the indie world is about in general. And so if you're trying to get your foot in the door in the indie world, you basically have to prove that you can do that. Now, I, I think it's really important that i mean i'll give you an example like give me the loot give me the loot was made for very little money like very little money, less than a hundred thousand dollars less than a hundred thousand yeah but give me the loot give me the loot was developed from the ground up to be that kind of film and so Mm -hmm. it like if you make give me the loot for five million dollars, I don't know that film is gonna be better than the hundred thousand dollar version. Because mm. it's like it's just not the kind of film that's gonna that's gonna gain something from that kind of production value. But I think the mistake that a lot of people make is they have the five million dollar film idea and they're like, all right, I'm gonna get it done, and they do it for fifty thousand dollars, and it looks like the kind of film that should have had more money. Um, and I think that. In reality, if you want to get your, if you just, if you're like, I want to be an independent filmmaker, it's not about producing your idea that is the, you know, the thing that's making you get up in the morning. It's about making something, right? It's about doing something that can show that you can, from the, from the gem of an idea to screen can make it happen. And then you can take that and go to the next step or the next step or whatever it is to get to your $5 million film or your $20 million film or whatever it is. But I think that that in the independent world, it's just like you have to show that you can do it. You have to show that you can scrap, that you can, you know, get production value for little or nothing. Because ultimately that's like, everybody's trying to figure out how to do that. Like no matter what level in the independent world, obviously Hollywood's another story and a different approach. I, I actually have I have a couple follow ups to that, but I, but because um, that sparks so much, but I, I want to ask one of them here. So I want to split those those two people because we we often in the in the independent world, independent film world, we think of the filmmaker who does 
wears a bunch of hats, writer, typically writer, director, but often writer, director, producer. So I imagine there are times, there must be, uh, where there are independent directors or directors who, who wish to do independent films who can't write or think they can write or not that great. Uh, and also vice versa, the screenwriter who's got this script that's killer but has no interest in directing. Where is the spot? Do those people ever link up? Where is the spot for, um, for anybody who may be listening or just in general, for that person who's got that, you know, independent spirit feeling kind of script but has no interest in directing? How do they sort of get in? It's not a Hollywood movie. How do they sort of, they don't want to make it themselves because they don't want to direct. How do they sort of, what path do you think they take? I, that's, that's a great question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that it still goes back to getting it done. I think it's just, it's, a, it's about sort of creating that team yourself. Mm. Um, so I think if you're, if you're that writer who doesn't want to direct, well, that you, have the, you have the script. So it's mm. how, finding that person that you work with and can work with in a way that can sort of create that team so that the team can produce the content from beginning to end. Because I don't, because not that it doesn't happen, but there isn't really a space in the, in, the, in the independent world where it's like, oh, I've got this script and now I'm looking for an independent director to do it. First of all, because there isn't just enough, there isn't enough money. Like right. there, there isn't enough money to bring on a director for hire. Like the, the, the amount of money that that director for hire would make, it, it's like, it's not even worth their time. Gotcha. If they're not in it, if they're not in it, it's something that they really want to do. In general, I, obviously there's, I mean, also the idea of what independent film, like there's $20 million independent film. Like, so it's, <laughs> right. like, um, so it's, it's, it's not across the board answer yeah. for that. But I think it is sort of creating that team yourself. Yeah. Um, Catch you. Well, can I let me ask you this question, man? Because as I'm listening to all this, uh, putting myself in the place of a young aspiring filmmaker, where do you get money? I mean, where do you even find money to make something under a hundred thousand dollars? It's tough, man. It's tough. Uh, it's tough, especially when you're looking at some of your peers and they just have access to it, or they or they have. They have a social network that can that where that's a much easier find. I think you know it. It always comes back to you know relationships. I think no matter what it is, no matter what your actual social no, the social so, social network that you grew up with versus like the people that you meet in film school or the people that you meet working in the industry. I think it it always comes back to these sort of relationships that you create. We were really fortunate. Give Me the Lou had an investor. Um, and it had an investor that was a friend of a friend of the director. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that was after you know a few months of looking for investors. And it ended up having a few investors, but without that primary investor, it never would have happened. Mm -hmm. But again, it was some, it was relationships that you know both the director created and genuine relationships that created that he created with these people, and then relationships that I had with folks that we were able to come to them and say, hey we've got this thing we, we think it has a real life and we know what we're doing trust your money with us and then you know once you've done that and again that that's what I, I keep coming back to that first project then getting the money gets a little easier 
The problem is you need more of it. <laughs> so if you needed the exact same amount of money, it would get real easy. Like if, if, you, if you make a $100,000 film, you can make $100,000 films for the rest of your life without a problem. <laughs> But the problem is you don't want to keep making a hundred thousand. You want to make a hundred thousand dollar film, then you want to make a million dollar film. And so the grind becomes sort of the same, but you just you get to a different room where you're looking for you know a slightly bigger thing. And so it 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 never really gets easier, but it gets better. I, I don't know how else to say it. Like it, it's not easier, but it does get better. You're now making looking for money for something different but there's no real answer i guess the short answer is there's no real answer to that like it yeah. it can come from anywhere and it's going to be harder for mm -hmm. you know folks like us than it is for you could say it black <laughs> folks yeah you, you could say, say it. it that's what this podcast is about. it's going to be harder for us to find to find that than it is you know we went to school with folks that you know they they had they had all they had to do was ask their mom yeah you know, and they could have that yeah no and we, you know not nothing taken away from them but like it doesn't that doesn't help our experience or our path no yeah we all went to school uh and you know this is i think <clears throat> something that a lot of uh black people experience when they go to really prestigious uh educational institutions we went to school with people who uh whose families were multi-millionaires people who had yeah. tens and hundreds of millions of dollars and that's not an exaggeration you know i think that whether you are a black person who comes from, you know, a place, uh, an impoverished working class place or a black person who comes from uh, just a comfortable middle class existence, very few of us have the backgrounds where anybody in our family has tens of millions of dollars or just generational wealth. So it is it is more <laughs> difficult and it's, it, it's sort of why it takes more more hustling. What did you say, Shu? Tens of millions, not even tens of thousands. <laughs> It's difficult. It's difficult. You know, I mean, I can I can say from I can say from personal experience that, you know, I grew up in a both my parents are white collar professionals. I grew up having every comfort in life I could ever uh, expect. I didn't want for much. If I asked my parents for one hundred thousand dollars to make a movie, they would slap the shit out of me and kick me out of the house or hang up the phone on me. Like it's you know, yeah. so it's it, there's a big difference between what we consider a comfortable existence in the black community versus the disposable income that it takes to make these really expensive works of art that we call films and television and even something like a web series. Or even the short film. Like, I, you know, yeah. I, we didn't mention it, and I, I know it's true for me, and I imagine it is for you, but I went into film school as a directing concentrate, and one of the reasons I switched to producing was I couldn't afford to make for directing projects that I had to come out of my pocket. Now there were other reasons too, but like that was that was also a factor in what pushed me to that was that I could produce someone else's film and they were gonna get the money from their parents <laughs> yeah. to make the film and I would produce it. Um, and I, you know, I, that's a real thing. I, I think it's such a great point too, because we're talking about access and how, how that has to do with whether or not you even have the opportunity to make that film good or bad to see if you can make it, whether it's a short, whether it's a web series, whether it's a feature, because just to send, just to hammer this point home, you know, for people that, whether it's their parents or a friend of a friend or co connection or whoever, I think the point you're making is that, because I remember you saying this to me uh, a while ago, not too long ago uh, when you, I can't remember what film you were making, but that, a lot of times the investor is just a person, just one person 
who wants to have a party at a film festival. There's your there's your investor in your in your film. Do you know what I mean? So if you by not having that person or not having access to that person, again, be they parent, friend of a friend or whatever, you have a different hurdle automatically, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I don't know if you have one last question, Shu, but I was going to go ahead and wrap it up, bro. I have I do have one more as it as it pertains to sort of like what you were saying earlier about you have to make your own thing in the independent world. And I, and I want to, you know, for, for, I guess specifically for black folks, but really anybody, what do you think now? Cause the business has changed. When we came up um, it was all about making that short that was going to get you to Sundance uh, whether as a writer director, and then things would take off from there. But the you know, there's lots of different outlets now. The game is a little different. Is your advice the same, different um, for people who just want to put together a project? What's the project? Is it a feature? Is it something else? Does it matter? Man, I don't. I, who knows right now, man? <laughs> I, I, you know, I think I, it sort of depends on who you're talking to. I, I, I think ultimately the the feature or the long form content is going to be more valuable mm-hmm. in be, because there's actually something that's that's sellable and can get a return on its investment not just as like mm-hmm. an example of your work right you're creating a thing that can actually be profitable right and once you've made something profitable then you become not just a content creator but now you become somebody that like it makes investment sense because you've made something that has that has gotten a return on an investment. And that's that's why I think it's really important for that first project to be low budget, not just because it's easier to get that much money, but also it's much easier to turn that thing into something that has turned a profit. Right. Um, but it depends on who you're talking to, because, you know, if you haven't made a short film, you need to make a short film. Like you, like right. you, you don't just leap to that thing like you. It's a like it still comes down to the craft. Like you have to like learn how to do these things and there are steps to get to it. But I think that ultimately the thing that, I, I know that there's this world of folks that are like, oh, you make the short film and you take the short film and you get into the film festival and then the festival happens and they want to make your feature. I don't, I don't know that, like that's never, I, I haven't ever seen that happen firsthand. I, oh, I know that that exists. Interesting. It feels like it feels like it happened once, and then everybody said, "Yeah, that's the path." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's like, and, and you know, I think Gina said this on our previous episode: is like, your plan can't be to win the short competition at Sundance. Like that can't be your plan. That works out for one person every year, and even that person is not guaranteed some lifelong career making features. So, uh, I hear what you're saying, Jack. Yeah, I just don't know. I, I think the sh- if you're thinking of the short. In that, in terms like that, it's, it's, that's unrealistic. But if you're thinking of the short and like, I'm gonna make this short and the short is gonna help me help me refine my craft and I'm gonna use this short to go out to the festival world and I'm gonna use the festival world to start building relationships and then I'm gonna keep along this path, then yeah. that's, that's realistic. And that's what I've seen firsthand, that's, mm. that's useful. A lot mm. of the people that I that I work with today are people that I've met on the festival circuit with mm. short films and that I've you know continued point. continued that path. That's realistic. But if you're looking at it like I'm gonna make this short and the short is gonna be the thing that takes me, 
the short might help you make that feature or might not, but like it's it has much it has other values that are gonna help you make that. Feature. Bro, that's a that's that is such a great point. That was like an aha moment, breakthrough moment for me because I think a lot of times just in, <laughs> why you laughing, sure. I mean, it's <laughs> funny that you're having an aha breakthrough moment as uh, an established writer who's. <laughs> Ten years deep into your career. <laughs> no, but sometimes, sometimes you gotta be reminded of stuff. Sometimes you because I think sometimes, like whether you're, look, whether you're aspiring or you're already sort of established in the business, you're always trying to push to the next thing. That that never ends. All of us, right? All of us on this on this podcast. So I think part of it is like I think, it, especially when you're aspiring, you try to figure out like. How can I do this thing so that it will lead to the next thing? You try to build like a little path. But a part of what I, the wisdom I think and what Jamie is saying is that like sometimes it's not just like what you think the next thing is going to be. In other words, like the value of just making the thing or writing the script or getting reads from whoever that may not be the producer that you want to read it or whatever. The value of just getting stuff out there is that it have benefits that you can't necessarily anticipate. And sometimes that comes in the form of people. Sometimes it comes in the form of contacts. You just never know. So the, the bottom line is like, make the shit basically make the shit. And, and the truth is like, if that short gets you a meeting with somebody and that meeting it like nothing tangible comes out of that meeting, you still sat in the room with that person and had a conversation. Yeah. And we're able yeah. to start some sort of relationship with that person that at some point may or may not come back to play. And yes. so I think all of those steps, like even if it's even if you make that short and you have 100 meetings and they all are no's, that means you sat in a room with 100 people that are making decisions. Yeah. And they now know your face and they now have some idea of who you are. And if you keep working and they keep working, those those circles are going to cross again. That's huge. That's huge. Absolutely. This was been this has been great, Jay. You've shed uh, light on tons of subjects. I think I really hope that people find this useful. Uh, Wait, Shakri had a Shakri had an aha moment. <laughs> is it whack? <laughs> I have one more question. Is it can we go two more minutes? Is it whack? I got one more question. Oh uh, yeah, it's pretty whack, but go ahead. <laughs> I just want I just want to see if Jamin could talk about what he's working on next. I've tried to wrap this up twice already. <laughs> if this goes long, all right. Sorry, please keep sorry, in mind. August. Please keep in mind that I have actually tried to wrap this up twice because <laughs> I'm trying to get us to that 45, 50 know, minutes sweet spot. She was my like, bad. "I have seven more questions." Um, <laughs> what? No, yes. We, uh, what are you working on next? Season two. Season two. We're starting the writing room. Uh, knock on wood at the end of this month. Um, so I, I don't know, I, no promises about when it will actually happen because, you know, COVID is is making that all those sorts of things difficult. So I don't know when we'll shoot it and produce it, but uh, we're, we're supposed to start the writing room into this month. Will you be directing? Uh, I, probably. That All that stuff hasn't completely been decided yet, but um, I think we, we don't know exactly what the format of the show is going to look like yet. So we don't, yeah. we haven't figured out all that, but it's likely that I'll be directing some some part of. Excellent, Shoe. Wrap us up, man. If you're ready, I'm I'm finally ready. That was great. That was a, that was a great a great interview. Great uh, advice, pieces of wisdom, knowledge on the NBA boycott. Uh, we wrap up every episode uh, with a little segment, Jamin, called "Don't Do That Shit." You are more than welcome to participate if you'd like. You don't have to, but you're more than welcome to. 
Uh, Don't Do That Shit is a segment in which Sherman and I give some real craft advice to people out there in the form of, you should not do this shit. Don't do that shit. Sherman, what's yours? Okay, so uh, my don't do that shit for this episode is one that uh, I hope to return to in long form, but I think I'll just I'll just give the, I'll just drop the jewel right now, which is stop making your secondary and supporting characters more interesting than your protagonist. Don't do that shit. I know that you think that you are as the writer, you're the quiet, interesting type that everybody's rooting for. And so you want to write that kind of character as you, as the main character of your script. First of all, you're not that interesting. You're just quiet and boring. Nobody cares about you. Don't put your own baggage into your script. Write the most interesting character possible, bro. And, and, and you know, like, just take a look at your script and look at that funny line that you gave to the best friend. Or look at that uh, real um, declaration that we're going to go out and do something that you gave to somebody else, uh, some supporting character. Give those moments and those funny lines and those interesting points. The most interesting things should come from your protagonist, not your secondary characters. So Amen. stop making your secondary characters and supporting characters more interesting than your protagonist. Don't do that shit. That's Sherman, if your lead character is less interesting than your secondary characters, then that ain't your lead character. Boom. <laughs> Boom. 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 Fire just shot out of the microphone. Boom. I love it. Who's next? My don't do that shit is very, uh, it is a little broad. Uh, but here it goes. Don't try to teach a motherfucker a lesson in your script. Some people want to write stories about issues. Some people want to get points of view across, political or otherwise, and teach the audience a lesson. Don't do that shit. Stories are not about issues. Stories are not about lessons. Stories are about people and characters. Your characters can learn, perhaps, or whatever, but don't try to teach us a lesson in the script. Okay, don't Amen. do that shit. That's not a script. Yeah. That's a Facebook post. Stop <laughs> it. Get off final draft, you herb. Uh, yeah, that's real. That's real. <laughs> teach your character a lesson if you want to, but don't, yeah. don't, don't teach don't me. Teach us. Yeah, don't, don't teach me a lesson. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Jamin, would you like to participate? I, I ha- Yeah, I have one. And, and, and I'll do this from the producing perspective of this but the same thing but like don't it, it, this is a it's a specific to right now because i think because of the pandemic i've had you know quite a bit of time off and i've i've been asked by by quite a few people some that i don't even know to read stuff and i've had the time to do it and i try to like do that mm-hmm. but don't don't ask someone to read your script and then argue with every piece of feedback they give you. Oh, God, do not do that, no. Like, even if you disagree, if you're asking something, like you're asking them for a reason, like, just take it, say yes, and then you don't have to, you don't even have to make a change based on that, but like, you, 
if you have an excuse and a reason why every piece of feedback they give you isn't the right feedback, then you shouldn't have asked them to write your script for real. to read your script. For real. So that's my that's my totally agree. Yeah, that's I mean, I think <clears throat> that's really great advice, and I think that Shu and I can speak from, especially the TV perspective, the film perspective somewhat, but the TV perspective. You're constantly getting notes. You're constantly getting notes from the room. You're getting notes from the showrunner. You're getting notes from the network, the producer. And there really is an art to just sitting back and nodding and agreeing with everything and silently and mentally making a note of what advice you're going to take and what advice you're not going to take. Exactly. You don't actually have to provide an explanation or defense or feedback for everything that somebody says. Not there's an art. There's an art to giving notes and there's an art to taking notes. Because when you get That's those right. notes, whether you agree or disagree with them, the genesis that they came from are telling you something about your story. That's you right. don't necessarily have to agree with that exact that exact note, but whatever whatever is causing that note, like you got to think about where it came from. That's right, one hundred percent, a hundred. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Yo, Jay. Thank you all, man. I loved it. Let's do it again. Absolutely, we're gonna have you back. Trust, trust. We're gonna have you back. Thank you for listening to The Diversity Hires. I'm Sherman Payne. And I'm Shukri Tillman. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by the wonderful August K. Burton. Shout out to AKB. Please visit our website, thediversityhires.com, and follow us on social media of your choice. We are at Div Hires Pod across all social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find the Diversity Hires podcast anywhere that you find podcasts. Smash that subscribe button, homie. Subscribe, please. We look forward to seeing you next time. Peace. Later. <laughs>